You know, the reality is many people who believe that their faith should be expressed on Sunday morning, but not necessarily in a voting booth, those are the people who are the most politically engaged around certain issues, right? It's the irony of all ironies. And so our faith should impact the way that we vote and the way that we worship on Sunday morning should impact the way that we engage with society. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendorf, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Prime. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Well, our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. She's the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace and is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church. She's also the author of Social Justice Handbook and Just Spirituality and the co-editor of Evangelicals, Theologies of Liberation and Justice. May, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me, Andy. All right. So folks just heard your amazing credentials, uh, but what would you want to know about us beyond uh, what we know about you beyond all that hard work? Um, that's a great question. Uh, my husband used to tease me, you know, I have several master's degrees and he used to tease me instead of Jack of all trades, uh, and master of none, he would say master of all trades and doctorate of none. And so <laughs> since I'm a chronic, uh, insomniac, I went and got two doctorates. So I have a, a doctorate that's a PhD in the history of American Protestant engagement in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Um, from the University of California, which is a, a secular degree. And then I did a doctorate of ministry uh, in spiritual formation. And it's interesting because people might think that they have nothing to do with one another, 
Um, and yet I think the engagement of Christian spirituality in academia in general, but um, you know, in politics, some of the things I'm sure we're gonna talk about today, that interests me uh, quite a bit. So um, I should start out with something that's like more accessible. I have two Great Danes and a poodle. How's that? <laughs> that's, that's very accessible, uh, you know, considering most of our folks maybe don't have a doctorate or just one, uh, you know, are, are you going for a third one or uh, is too, too good enough for you? Well, you know, I'm ready for law school to go online so that I don't have to actually go anywhere. <laughs> oh, are you serious? Well, a little bit. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Well, here I am uh, now feeling like more of an underachiever than I were before we were beginning the conversation. So oh, please uh, don't. No, not at all. So how, how did you get into to advocacy? Tell us, uh, talk us, walk us through that journey, if you will. Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, one of my major entry points was through race. I grew up in rural Southern Maryland. Some people think Maryland is not the South, but I remind them that it is South of the Mason-Dixon line and rural Southern Maryland is uh, very, very Southern, uh, particularly in terms of racial dynamics. And so I grew up in a community that was very black and white. Um, a certain percentage of the community was African-American. And I was so blessed um, from the time I was in elementary school to have mentors and leaders you know, who were black and um, to watch and to learn as a student and you know, increasingly as I got older as a friend about some of their struggles was really eye-opening for me. And then I ended up going to school uh, for college at the University of Chicago. And Chicago is so much more diverse. You know, not only do you have African-Americans and, um, you know, white people, uh, but there was a high percentage of Asian-Americans. And so I was actually mentored by a Chinese-American who really, really helped open my eyes to the way that my childhood had been so racialized. Um, and so many dynamics of racial discrimination and racial justice that I just was ignorant of and, you know, culpable for in terms of white privilege and other aspects of race. And so for me, that was really my entry point um, of realizing that advocacy is the way that we address unjust systems. Um, and when you care about people who are experiencing injustice because you are in proximity with them, you know, that's an on-ramp to becoming an advocate. Yeah, so for most people, uh, especially I would say in the predominantly white evangelical church, advocacy is not um, an inherent pillar of, yeah. of the church. Um, for many traditions, it is becoming one. So I wonder if you might take us through the theological journey for you of um, I guess, in a sense, an awakening to uh, the need of advocacy as part of your faith journey? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, certainly when we go to the scriptures, we learn about the advocate of, you know, the Holy Spirit being a part of the Trinity um, and being identified as an advocate. And sometimes in the context of the church, advocacy is only understood in that spiritualized context. So, you know, there are certain Christian ministries, for example, that say that they are about advocacy and they're really not about addressing systems as much as they're about, you know, good ministry needs, but, but not addressing, you know, systemic injustice. And I think for me, as I increasingly 
came to be in proximity with people of color, but then also, you know, you and I were talking about um, your being based in the South in Louisiana, and I had a lot of direct exposure to um, communities like the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola or the Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women. And so you learn a lot about legal advocacy when laws that are applied in one state, like Louisiana, may be very, very different than laws that are applied in Mississippi. So for example, and I'm sure you know this because you know, you're from down that way, but um, if you commit a crime in Louisiana, that same crime might have a significantly longer um, term of imprisonment than if you committed the same exact crime across the state lines in Mississippi. Be, you know, and so that's really a question of justice. And so then what's it mean to be an advocate for, you know, equality amongst laws and to be an advocate responding to injustices in the prison system. Um, so that's been a little bit of my journey in that regard. Um, and I think the other thing that I would add is, you know, as we define advocacy, certainly it means standing alongside people and being in solidarity. And that's a great, great, great starting point. But we also need to be reminded that, you know, sometimes we talk about being a voice for the voiceless. And actually, very few people are voiceless, if any, because people have voices where they can speak for themselves. And so what's it mean to come alongside of communities and individuals who are experiencing oppression or injustice, advocating with them, um, you know, not advocating uh, in a way that does not acknowledge their agency or their self-determination. When people look at advocates, uh, they often often see them in you know in sound bites in in the court or at, at rallies. Um, but what does it look like on a day-to-day basis to do your kind of work? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I think that people can be called to be different kinds of advocates. So some people are called to be intercessors in the context of the church. And I don't think that we can ever fully appreciate or acknowledge the significance of having spiritual advocates, people who are praying for us, people who are praying for our ministries, people who are praying with us. Um, And so I think advocacy can look differently for different people. Um, So spiritual advocacy is one way. Um, We were talking about legal advocacy in terms of, you know, directly engaging with legal systems. So there's this incredible organization, for example, um, that I've had the privilege to spend a little bit of time with called Equal Justice Initiative. uh, And Brian Stevenson, who wrote that incredible book that hit the New York Times bestseller list called Just Mercy. It's also a movie. You know, and their work is all about legal advocacy within the system. Some of my work related to the Middle East, um, Churches for Middle East Peace, we engage in political advocacy and we do a lot of work on Capitol Hill or at the State Department or with the White House on educating um, our policymakers about the way US policies affect Christians in the Middle East, but others in the Middle East as well. You know, and so that's an example of political advocacy, if you will. Um, there's five different types of advocacy I talk about in the book. Another one that was largely inspired um, by John Perkins is the idea of economic advocacy that's certainly seeking to respond to the needs of the poor and helping communities to be able to engage in sustainable transformational development. Um, That's economic advocacy. 
And the fifth one, I literally have to look it up. I pulled up the book because I know that there's five. Spiritual advocacy. Oh, social advocacy. All of us, I think, can be social advocates. And that just means when we're with our family, when we're with our friends, when we're at church, how do we allow our speech and our engagement in the public square to be one that is standing alongside of communities that are suffering? So right now in late March, 2021, one of the communities across the country that's the most affected by the realities of the coronavirus is the Asian American community. And so we are seeing you know, increased attacks against people of Asian descent or Asian Americans. And so one of the ways we can be social advocates is by speaking out against that, by joining, you know, I think you mentioned rallies and things like that as ways of you know, engaging in advocacy as well. Well, you have a, a new book out, Beyond Hashtag Activism. This is an invitation for people to go beyond the reactionary nature of engaging in the work of, of justice and to do something more. Uh, you wrote, Hashtag Activism articulates a holistic reading of the gospel that is inclusive of core principles of social justice, including responding to the needs of the poor in the United States and around the world, addressing the realities of racial inequalities and white supremacy, acknowledging and calling for change in the mistreatment of women domestically and internationally, and wrestling through questions on the horizon that the evangelical church will have to address. Tell us the story behind writing this book. Thank you. Um, you know, my first book came out in 2009. It was called Social Justice Handbook, and I love the subtitle, Small Steps for a Better World. And that book talked about biblical justice and how the church can hold on to the truths of scripture while engaging in global justice issues. And here at this book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, came out 10 years later. And I really initially thought so much has happened in the church and in the world related to the way the church in the United States understands what the Bible teaches about justice in terms of opportunities to engage in nonprofits that are doing great work, like responding to sex trafficking and, you know, seeking to end extreme poverty, like all these things have changed over the last decade. So in December 2018, I remember it like it was yesterday, it was kind of late at night, that insomnia again. And I just had this sense in my spirit that God, um, I felt like God called me to write this book and that this book was actually my soul on paper. It was kind of the struggles of my soul and, and the way that I see the church struggling so much, you know, particularly um, the political climate, you know, in 2018 and 2019 and 2020 and the divisions across political divides and how the church has been represented uh, in the media. And so I really wanted to write this book for people who disagree about really important issues, um, but who really wanna know how can we do more? How can we engage more? You know, it's interesting, this book was written before the death of George Floyd, um, which happened just uh, a year ago in late May. And yet this book speaks to the very issues that culminated in George Floyd's death and that culminated in you know, the protests around the country of, you know, people calling for racial justice. Um, and I often say, you know, it's not the best recruitment tool, like come work with us at Churches for Middle East Peace or come engage with our work. And it doesn't matter what side you're on, someone will be mad at you, right? Because 
every controversial issue, not everyone, but quite a few controversial justice issues this book seeks to address in a way that has integrity and in a way that elevates scripture as where we're going to find answers about what the Bible has to say about issues of justice. In the book, you lay out the biblical foundation for justice. For many Christians, the idea of activism is a very foreign concept, one that bears no connection to their religious understanding. Why do you think that so many Christians, um, within especially the American tradition, disconnect their faith and the work of justice? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it was not the case in the um, 19th century. In the 1800s, the church in the U.S. was the place where people went when they were seeking justice. When people were suffering from poverty or had physical needs or material needs, who did they go to? They didn't go to the government. They didn't go to social workers. They went to the church. And so the church in the U.S. has this rich, rich foundation of being the center of delivering benevolence and compassion and also being a place um, that was really engaged with society you know in terms of holistic uh, justice issues and that really changed from a historical perspective for a couple of reasons um, one in the early 20th century there was a move towards the privatization of compassion so social work for example as um, a profession uh, came to being in the early 20th century. And so you started to have professionals who were responsible for caring for the poor instead of the church being the primary place um, that was addressing you know, domestic poverty, let alone international poverty. And then the other thing that happened in the early 20th century, here you're getting a little glimpse of uh, my doctorate in history. And so I'm sorry if this history is boring, um, I should pause. Once you get me started on history, I don't stop. Uh, do you want me to keep going or? <laughs> uh, as a person who has two degrees in history, no, please keep going. <laughs> so the other thing, thank you, thank you. Um, the other thing that happened in the early 20th century is that there was a division in the church with the fundamentalist, um, the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy. And, you know, many people are familiar with 1925 and the Scopes monkey trial where, you know, fundamentalism and Christianity in the public square was quote unquote on trial uh, because of, you know, this professor or this high school teacher that was going to teach evolution in school. Um, you know, and so the whole Scopes monkey trial and then this fundamentalist modernist uh, controversy really led to a division in the church in the you know, first half of the 20th century, where a part of the church really reverted to, we're going to hold on to ideas of righteousness, the sanctity uh, of the scriptures, um, the inerrancy of the word of God, and that's what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And then there was this other part of the church that said, actually, the primary mission of the gospel is to be out in the world and to address issues um, you know, that are affecting uh, one's neighbor. And so that movement really came to be known as the social gospel. And in large part, um, Protestant progressives embraced the social gospel. Evangelicals and fundamentalists embraced this more righteous uh, piety, you know, in the inerrancy of scripture. And you had a division in the church where there were only a few streams um, that really held on to both of these concepts of righteousness and justice. Um, and so in large part, 
you know, when your question asks, uh, why does the church today have such a hard time, you know, with even the term justice or the term social justice, um, some of it comes from that history. And the idea that if you pursue social justice, you're not pursuing biblical justice, uh, which is where my work really began, because I think that that's fundamentally not true. Christ was an advocate of justice and was the leader of what it meant to live a just life. Um, and certainly, you know, his very first sermon, Luke chapter four, Jesus's very first sermon is quoting the prophet Isaiah, and it is a sermon about justice. Um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. And who's the good news being preached to? To the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, uh, to set the oppressed free. Um, and so in that regard, I believe Jesus's message and the message of the Bible is one of justice. And um, that's the best good news of, of them all, right? That we have access to God the Father because of our faith in Christ and that this faith we possess, profess desires for the world to be the way God initially intended for it to be. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. What will ministry at your church look like as we exit the pandemic? Where do you see new opportunities and insights needed? What are the pressure points that need support? BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, invites you to take a short survey where you can share your insights. You'll also be entered to win a $100 gift certificate to an online Black-owned bookstore. Help us out and take the survey today at bsk.edu backslash pathways. That's bsk.edu backslash pathways. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. For many within the Christian tradition, the, the four primary areas of justice that you've covered in the book are self-explanatory in the sense that um, these things correlate back to the teachings and ministry of Jesus. And, and yet for some, um, there is a, a, a contentious nature to the issues that you've raised or the primary areas of justice that you've raised. It, it might drum up fear, uh, anger, confusion, division, anxiety. Um, you wrote, um, on, on one hand, the separation of private faith and spirituality for evangelicals and political interest in the public square has had one of the most uh, devastating effects on the gospel of Christ as a witness in the U.S. context. Many churches strongly believe Christians have no business talking about politics and government and policies related to social issues in the context of the church life and ministry. Uh, what do you think is, is the greatest theological obstacle um, uh, 
uh, for, for many faith traditions that, that, that take issue with thinking about uh, these issues or these topics as relating back to their faith? Yeah, that's a good question as well. I think that there are a few key verses that people lean on um, when they look at the separation of you know, one's personal faith or spirituality and political engagement. Um, you know, one of them is the verse uh, where Jesus said, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? This idea of um, separating ourselves, uh, those of us who self-identify as Christians, separating ourselves from uh, the political powers and authorities in the world. Um, other verses uh, that talk about, you know, being in the world, but not of the world. And so there's a viewpoint that um, political engagement um, is being of the world, right? And we're called not to be of the world. We're, you know, we're called to be in it, but not of it. And so I think some of those verses are some of the foundational points for those types of beliefs. And personally, I think we need to deconstruct that. And, um, you know, the reality is many people who believe that their faith um, should be expressed on Sunday morning, but not necessarily in a voting booth, those are the people who are the most politically engaged around certain issues, right? It's the irony of all ironies. And so my thought is that our faith should impact the way that we vote and the way that we worship on Sunday morning should impact the way that we engage with society. And so I think there needs to be um, some deconstruction from that perspective, but then also even just understanding what's it mean to be politically engaged. You know, the term politics really is just about how people operate within a society, the rules that a society lives by. And so um, I think Jesus, you know, had some things to say about that when he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so I think those are some of the things we need to talk about when people ask, you know, what's it mean to be a faithful Christian who's politically engaged? You spoke about uh, the intersectionality as, as ability to see how interlocking systems of power impact those who are, are marginalized in society. You wrote these interconnected relationships must be deconstructed and acknowledged if you want to address systemic injustice rather than just respond to the symptoms of the problem. Take us a little deeper here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things people have been talking about a lot during these months and this last year um, of the coronavirus is about how uh, COVID-19 does not discriminate. And I wrote an article um, that was published by the American Baptist actually uh, talking about how COVID-19 actually does discriminate. And this is an example of what you just uh, read about intersectionality, that certainly the coronavirus as an illness um, affects all people, you know, depending on their physiology and it doesn't matter the person's color, certainly their age would have an impact. But the point that I was writing in this article about how the virus does discriminate is that the poor are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And so what I mean by that is when you have communities that don't have access to healthcare, you know, they're not going to actually have access to the types of medicines or if they have a severe case to have access to um, 
you know, the, the necessary medical equipment to be able to respond to their needs. When you have abject poverty in different parts of the world, like the Middle East or in, you know, different countries in Africa, you know, these communities that are living in extreme poverty don't have access to water to be able to wash as much as, you know, countries that are more economically resourced, for example. And so, um, you know, one of the programs that was seeking to respond to some of the impoverished communities in the U.S., one of the things that they did was actually bring in hand-washing stations into urban environments where urban environments, many people don't have the luxury of not going to work because if they don't go to work, they won't be able to feed their families. They don't have the luxury of, um, social distancing because they have to take a bus to work. And if they don't take public transportation, they don't have other means. And so, you know, poverty and um, access to healthcare and all of these other different justice issues are interconnected, just as we talk for a few minutes about the example of COVID-19. And I would say, pick the issue. Um, if it's pollution, you know, pollution is connected to race because pollution affects communities that are the most impoverished. And in many parts of the world, the communities that um, are the most economically deprived are communities of color, for example. Um, so those are some examples of what I mean by intersectionality. In the book, you cover four primary areas of advocacy, poverty, race, gender, and then a larger swath, which is 21st century divides, such as marriage and sexuality. In your experience, is, is there one particular area of advocacy that's the most challenging to navigate um, within, within a faith tradition? Um, I think it probably depends on the faith tradition. I think some different streams of the church um, have different areas that they hold the most tightly to. Um, and so I think, you know, that last section of 21st century divides, certainly um, sexuality and what the Bible has to teach about marriage is an incredibly divisive issue. And I really sought in that chapter to look at people who self-identify as followers of Christ, who believe in the Bible, um, who actually have come to different conclusions about that question. I really sought to wrestle and, and um, to delve deeply into that issue. And so I think regardless of what people believe about different contentious issues, they can pick up this book and find something they agree with and something they disagree with. Uh, Cause I really sought to um, give voice to varying perspectives of well-meaning and devoted, you know, followers of Christ. Um, and, you know, in my own experience, that manifests itself a lot in my work in the Middle East. I work with a lot of church communities that fundamentally believe the only way to honor God is to esteem the modern nation state of Israel. And my encouragement to them is pray for Israel. I don't want you to not pray for Israel, but pray for their Palestinian neighbors as well. Um, and then I work with a lot of church communities that you know, believe that God is the God of the oppressed and they see the Palestinian people living under occupation and they believe the church is obligated to be in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And, you know, I also believe that. And I believe that um, the Jewish people in Israel and around the world have suffered great, great injustices at the hands of anti-Semitism. And so 
you know, there are days where I'm criticized by Palestinian solidarity activists and I'm criticized by, um, you know, people who are very, very pro-Israel as well. For many, especially those that come from more conservative tradition, um, there's so much identity wrapped up in these areas, whether you're, you're talking about white supremacy or uh, defining marriage and relationships. And, and without realizing it, people's responses to reject openness to these things since it's wrapped up in their identity. So, so for local church leaders, where do you begin to help identify these areas of advocacy in such a way that you don't, you don't end up shooting yourself in the foot, I guess, hypothetically speaking, or right. uh, metaphorically speaking, um, you know, to even help get down the road of a conversation. So, you know, canceling this conversation before it can even happen because uh, people just reject the notion outright. So, so how do you get started? Where, where, do you, where do you help people identify with these areas of advocacy? Um, one of my favorite sections um, that's actually from Social Justice Handbook is a Bible study of two words in the Hebrew scriptures, the words mishpat, uh, which means justice, and tzaddik, or tzaddik, which means righteousness. And um, I do a Bible study of those two words, justice and righteousness in the Hebrew scriptures. And then interestingly, when, when we move to the New Testament, um, you know, the Koine Greek, the word for justice and righteousness is actually one word. It's encapsulated in this concept. And the Greek word is dikaios or dikaiosune. And this might sound like, oh my goodness, you're going back to Greek and Hebrew. How's that going to help contemporary justice issues? But I think for a lot of churches to really look and be able to see that there is a path for what it means to pursue both righteousness and justice, not only from the prophets of old, not only from the Hebrew scriptures, but also from the teachings of Jesus, right? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that Greek word is actually dikaios, or a version of dikaios, dikaiosune. And it really means, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for justice. And so if we are able, as you know, people of the book, if we are able as um, church leaders and pastors to connect our, our faith tradition, connect our understanding of the Bible, then to real issues of, okay, what's it mean to pursue righteousness and justice you know, with our neighbors you know, on these contentious issues? Um, I think that's a really great starting point. Um, and then my other comment has to do with proximity. I think you know, not every church and not every person is called to engage in every single justice issue. It can become quite overwhelming. We can become quite discouraged, but I believe that God has a call on our lives as individuals and as communities. And so to seek to discern because of proximity, what injustices are you closest to? What are the injustices that are right in your neighborhood or right in your state? Um, or what are the injustices that keep you up at night and you can't sleep because you heard reports about it on the news? I think those are often places where the spirit is trying to provoke us um, to be able to respond as individuals and as communities. You've said certainly comprehensive justice is an audacious claim. What, what makes it so audacious? Well, I certainly don't think that... Um, you know, I individually have, um, you know, 
uh, I, I laughed when the editors um, of my first book named it Social Justice Handbook, because I think it's quite audacious to say I wrote, you know, the handbook on social justice, right? And so in that regard, um, to none of us have a deep understanding of all of these different things. And I think one of the beautiful aspects of being in community and being a part of the body of Christ is that different members of the community are experts in different areas. And so my hope in this book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, was to try to tap into a lot of those experts, where I'm certainly not the expert, but where I could bring some of these resources um, you know, to bear in this book um, so that pastors and leaders and small groups, if they have questions about where do you start, are churches really wrestling, wrestling with what the Bible teaches about sexuality, that beyond hashtag activism is a great place to start on addressing comprehensive issues of justice. You've argued that success in advocacy um, space requires fortitude, persistence, and longevity. And the only way to truly be successful advocates is to stay in the game and not give up, you wrote. As a person of faith, where do you find what it takes to be successful? Hmm. Often I find hope and encouragement from the people who are living in it. And so, you know, I work a lot on the Middle East and Lebanon and Egypt and um, Iraq and Yemen and Palestine and Israel. And when I see people and mothers who are raising their children um, in just devastating circumstances and they're still hopeful and they're still kind and they're still encouraging and they still wake up every morning and make breakfast. And um, when I see that type of fortitude in communities that are suffering, when I myself and the communities around me are so privileged and so resourced, um, that's something that keeps me in the game. And then I think, you know, the reason I wrote uh, the book, Just Spirituality, um, the subtitle of that book is How Faith Practices Fuel Social Action. I believe our very fuel, our very energy, our very passion um, comes from the Holy Spirit within us and comes from us constantly tapping into the source of all love and the source of all good things. Um, and so that centeredness in the spirit, um, I think, gives us the ability to have persistence when sometimes it doesn't seem like the work that we're doing is making a difference. How do people develop the fortitude and persistence necessary for the work of advocacy? Mm. Yeah, great question. Sometimes it's just doing it. It's just getting up and taking one more step forward, right? Um, sometimes uh, I think it's about doing it in the context of community and not being alone. So when I'm ready to put my head down or beat my head against the wall or you know, cry or kick or give up, um, people around me will say, no, let's keep going, right? Or people around us when we're in the context of community will like, give us encouragement uh, that keeps us taking steps forward. And so I think um, some of it is, is just the faithfulness and even the prayer in every moment of God, help me to be faithful in whatever it is you have for me to do this day. And if you can't say this day, then this hour. And if you can't say this hour, then, you know, God, give me the strength to be faithful in this moment. In this moment, how do you want me to be re to respond? How do you want me to be an advocate? 
you know, alongside others. There's a, a sense among advocates that uh, now is when is needed for change, um, but now isn't always when change happens. Mm-hmm. So how do you develop this, this longevity that, that you're writing about? Yeah, I talk about the difference between pragmatic advocacy and prophetic advocacy. And certainly, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., for example, wrote you know, a powerful, um, I don't know if it was a sermon, I've, I've re- read it in books um, called Why We Can't Wait. And I think that there is this urgency of, you know, if we don't respond to violence against Asian Americans, Asian Americans are experiencing damage even to the point of death, you know, as the recent Atlanta shootings show, for example. And so there is this urgency. And I think we need people in the context of the church that are prophetic advocates, that are speaking truth, that are going out ahead uh, of certain issues, um, that are voices, you know, crying out in the wilderness about the effects of injustice. But then we also need pragmatic advocates. And pragmatic advocacy sometimes means swallowing pills where you know, the whole issue isn't resolved. I mean, I, we think about this in politics all the time, right? Um, how do you actually get something done um, that can make a material difference? And sometimes that means not always getting... Um, not always having the moral issue be acknowledged, not always having the prophetic voice being heard. Um, so for example, I often talk about um, William Wilberforce, you know, his life's goal was to end the slave trade in England. And in large part, he failed at winning the moral argument that you know most people in England or many people in England during his time believed that slavery was a justified um, institution, but he won a pragmatic argument. The, the reason slavery ended was that the slave trade ended and it was illegal for ships to actually carry slaves under the British flag. And so that was a pragmatic win, not a moral win. And I think that's one of the ways that we move the needle. You know, we pray often the words of Jesus, um, thy kingdom come. And so what's it mean for us to uh, take step by step of trying to help the world become more um, like a manifestation of the kingdom of God uh, in very small ways sometimes. How do you imagine folks using your book? Yeah, I hope it provokes great discussions. I hope that people are able to um, talk with people with whom they disagree to have conversations with communities outside of their own that maybe don't look the way that their community looks. Um, I think it's a great resource for small groups. I have questions after each of the chapters. You know, and part of what I really sought to do as well is if there's issues that the book addresses, I really um, have different sections that provide additional resources where you can go to learn more. And so I hope the book will be a stepping stone for churches and communities that want to better understand this moment in our church's history that's so politically divided, that's so racially divided. You know, churches and communities that want to be faithful to the teachings and word of God um, and Jesus's teachings about uh, justice and community. 
I know you're speaking a little bit to this and how you hope folks will use your book, but what is your hope for the book? You know, I, um, I just hope that it's uh, a point of me being faithful. I, I hope that anything in it that's of me and not of God <laughs> would be ignored and anything in it that might be, um, you know, faithful and uh, good, that then it might be elevated, that it might be of service to the church, of service to individuals, of service to communities. That's my hope. You know, as, um, as we talk about this, you know, uh, certainly there's many faith traditions represented within our audience, but you, you come from a, a distinct faith tradition. How is, how is your uh, work um, within your faith tradition um, been challenged in the work of advocacy, let's say in the last year? Sure. Well, I am from a faith tradition that self-identify, or I self-identify, but also my denomination and um, identifies as evangelical. So I am a white evangelical and certainly in 2016 and then again in the most recent elections in 2020, there has been a narrative about the contribution of white evangelicals and they're, you know, in large part voting, uh, the voting block of white evangelicals in both 2016 and then the most recent election voted overwhelmingly um, for President Trump. And you know, I'm a person who believes you can be Republican or Democrat and be a faithful follower of Jesus. Um, I happen to be quite conservative um, in terms of my understanding of scripture, but even in terms of some of my beliefs about the role of government. Um, and yet, I think that there were um, many, many, many lines that the former president crossed that the church is obligated as individuals and as a community to stand up and say, that's not okay. And, you know, an example that I would give is the culmination of uh, a number of supporters of President Trump on January 6th, 2021, storming the U.S. Capitol building. Um, it's known as the insurrection. And, you know, many people may not know the degree to which evangelicals and self-identifying Christians, but specifically white evangelicals, were a part of that. There's this harrowing video in the Senate chamber of some young men who um, had breached the Capitol. They're in the Senate chamber and they are praying in the Senate chamber and they're praying in the name of Christ. And my greatest concern is the witness of Jesus for people who don't know him uh, in that context is that's not the Christianity that I know. That's not the Christ that I know. And yet the language that they're using and the very actions that they engaged in in that place was done in the name of Jesus. And so I think it's incredibly important, you know, for others who might self-identify as white evangelical um, to really uh, question um, our moral integrity in the public square, because I think the very witness of the evangelical church is at stake um, in those types of political actions, which are just so incredibly damaging. As you speak about this, and the, and the reason I ask this is because, you know, it's easy to assume that all faith traditions and denominations, everybody's in the same place when it comes to the work of something like advocacy. You know, but to show that there is uh, diversity. So how how is your faith tradition approaching 
the conversation of, you know, hey, we're, we're not all in the same place when it comes to these issues. How do y'all create dialogue in a healthy way? Sure. Well, um, one of the great things about the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, back in the day, this was probably a decade or so ago, it used to be one of the fastest growing denominations in the country because of churches of color that were coming into the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, it is one of the few evangelical denominations that ordains women. But I think one of the ways that we can be faithful in that space, and I, I think the Evangelical Covenant Church certainly has the opportunity in this regard as well, is for there to be um, places within our denominations that uh, churches that are white-centric, or not even white-centric, but predominantly white uh, churches, can really have meaningful and authentic relationships with churches of people of color. Um, and so there's some programs that the Covenant offers, for example, uh, one of the most impactful in my life is a program called Sankofa. Sankofa is an African word that means looking at the past in order to be able to move forward constructively into the future. And the denomination takes a busload of um, a diverse group of people, often pastors or church leaders, but many times the busload will be um, half people of color, uh, including African Americans, and half uh, white pastors and leaders, and then going and doing a civil rights pilgrimage through the South and meeting with church leaders you know, of different um, traditions and backgrounds. And those types of experiences are transformative um, in terms of helping us all, regardless of where we're coming from, be more aware of some of our biases uh, and some of the ways that our background and our context might influence, influence us in ways that are not the most helpful. Well, if you want to stay connected with May, visit maycannon.com. Of course, follow her on social media. May, thank you for giving us a, a practical and deeply insightful resource for the work of advocacy, challenging us and inspiring us to do the work of God and seeking justice for our neighbor. Thank you, Andy. May it be so. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate and Ministry Program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.